I think, you know, zoning is fascinating to people because when when they become aware of it, it's this invisible force that's shaping the built environment around them. And when they become aware of it, they realize, wow, this is a really powerful tool that can be used for good or ill uh, that's shaping the communities that we live in. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pope, and on the show today, we are going to talk all about zoning. Joining us is the brilliant author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. We'll take a fascinating journey back to 1916, exploring the origins and motivations behind the creation of zoning. From there, we'll uncover both the positive and negative aspects of zoning. Then we take a look into the environmental impact of zoning, discussing the consequences of transforming walkable cities into car-centric landscapes including the loss of corner grocery stores and the environmental implications of increased emissions. We won't stop there. We'll also explore the case for zoning reform and even delve into the controversial topic of abolishing zoning altogether. And as a special treat, we'll take a close look at the zoning code of a small Appalachian eastern Kentucky town to understand how it affects population growth. If you ever played SimCity growing up, you understand the challenges of city planning. While the game simplifies the complexities of real-world city planning, it does provide a basic framework for understanding the factors involved in building successful cities. One important aspect that SimCity introduces is the concept of city zoning, where players can designate specific areas for residential, industrial, and commercial purposes. In reality, city zoning is a much more intricate and multifaceted process that often involves political considerations. When you reflect on the city you grew up in or currently reside in, you can observe how the layout of the city incorporates distinct zones for various functions. You may have lived in a single-family house surrounded by similar homes in a residential neighborhood, or you may have grown up in an apartment complex surrounded by other multifamily buildings. All of these different arrangements are a result of zoning regulations, which are typically outlined in a city's zoning map. Zoning plays a crucial role in shaping the character and functionality of cities. It helps to separate incompatible land uses, minimize potential conflicts, and guide the overall development of urban areas. By designating specific zones for residential, commercial, and industrial activities, city planners aim to create functional communities. However, the process of zoning can be influenced by various factors, such as local politics, community input, and economic considerations. Our guest on the Green Hour today is Nolan Gray, a distinguished expert in zoning and urban planning. I had the pleasure of meeting Nolan at an environmental conference in Salt Lake City, Utah, where he delivered a compelling talk on zoning and discussed his book titled Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Nolan Gray currently serves as the research director for California Yimby, which is yes in my backyard, and has dedicated the majority of his career to the study of zoning. 
He brings a wealth of practical experience to the table, having worked as a planner in New York City, specifically in Queens. Nolan is also an affiliated scholar with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he advises state and local policymakers on land use policy. With a PhD in urban planning underway at UCLA, Nolan is actively contributing to the academic understanding of urban planning. He is widely recognized for his insightful contributions, with his work appearing in prominent publications such as The Atlantic, Bloomberg City Lab, and The Guardian. In addition to his professional accomplishments, Nolan Gray is a member of the esteemed America's Future 1995 Society, further demonstrating his standing as a respected authority in his field. Zoning, implemented by cities since 1916 to separate different land uses, has unfortunately led to unintended consequences. Rather than effectively managing land uses, it has contributed to the segregation of communities based on class and race. Additionally, zoning has played a role in pushing people out of large cities by artificially inflating property values, making it harder for new residents to afford housing. This phenomenon has not only increased inequality, but also resulted in the displacement of individuals and communities. Moreover, zoning has inadvertently contributed to the increased carbon emissions by promoting sprawl and car-dependent lifestyles. Although zoning has been a long-standing tool in the United States for over a century, it is crucial to recognize the need for innovation and reform. Nolan Gray, our guest, will shed light on the imperative to rethink and revamp zoning through local initiatives and even consider more radical ideas, like abolishing it altogether. It's time to critically examine how zoning affects our communities and explore alternative approaches that prioritize inclusivity, sustainability, and the overall well-being of residents. So I'll say, Nolan, you definitely uh, piqued my interest um, at, at the summit. Um, you're talking about zoning, which, um, like I said, I, I wasn't familiar with. And to a lot of people, that could probably be a boring subject, but the way that you presented it, it, it made it very interesting. And even you know, a lot of people I talked to that were at the summit, people around my age were like, yeah, Nolan Gray's presentation was my favorite because I felt like I learned something that you know I could take back to wherever I live and I can use it every single day. So kind of wild that we're sitting here today. I mean, we met one night out and... Um, I wanted to talk to you after you had spoken because you're from Lexington, Kentucky, mm-hmm. and I spent all my college years um, in Eastern Kentucky. So I was like, "Wow, I've got to, I've got to talk to this guy." I mean, <laughs> this is this is incredible. And I actually tried to talk to you after um, you had spoken, but there was such a large line of people that I wasn't able able to get to you. And it was wild when I just went out with some people that I hardly even knew that that night in, in Utah, and there you were. You know, it's a small world. It is a small world. Yeah, you you encounter folks who have been through Kentucky kind of all over the place. It's it's amusing. I'm out here in California, and um, I will regularly meet people who are they talk about Kentucky like it's like people on the East Coast maybe talk about the European country that their ancestors are from. You know, maybe they have like a, a, a they have parents or grandparents or great grandparents who moved from Kentucky. Um, yeah, no, the the conference was great. I mean, the uh, it was it was a really fantastic experience. So and, uh, there was a huge. I think you know. Zoning is fascinating to people because when when they become aware of it, it's this invisible force that's shaping the built environment around them. And when they become aware of it, they realize, wow, this is a really powerful tool that can be used for good or ill uh, that's shaping the communities that we live in. 
So, so talking back about Kentucky, um, the old dean of, of my business school's name was Howard Roberts. And when, when I left um, the University of Pikeville, he said, Preston, no matter where you go, you will always encounter people that either are from Pikeville or that know about Pikeville. And I was like, there's no way because Pikeville is this tiny little, tiny little speck on the map. There's no way. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's said to be true. I, I continue to meet people that know about Pikeville. So, Nolan, where I want to start with, with, this, with this talk is talking about you know, your, your upbringing in Kentucky and kind of your whole life. Obviously, we know, we know where you are today and what you're doing in L.A., but could you start by talking about you know, growing up in, in Kentucky and how that molded you into who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, you know, the connection to Pikeville, my mom, and all of that side of the family is from Martin County, Kentucky, uh, just, up the, uh, just up the West Virginia, Kentucky border there. A uh, little town called Warfield, um, near Lovely. <laughs> um, so I grew up, you know, going out there every summer. So deeply, I have a deep sense of connection and affection for Eastern Kentucky. Uh, dad was from Louisville. Uh, so they met halfway and I grew up in uh, Lexington. You know, I grew up in a very conventional suburb, I think, in a, in a, a, a suburb that was built in the, in the uh, early 90s. Uh, type of place, you know, heavily, heavily regimented. All the homes look the same. All the homes have the same front yard, all the same uh, heights. Uh, you know, you have to drive everywhere. Uh, you have to drive to do things that historically folks could have walked to, like go to a barber shop or go to a corner grocery. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I see the appeal. I understand why a lot of people want to live in communities like that. But uh, most Americans don't really have a choice. That's the place where we build most of our new uh, uh, housing. Uh, so grew up in a context like that, um, moved to into a more urban area of Lexington to the extent that they're very urban areas of Lexington uh, to go to University of Kentucky for undergrad, um, uh, studied philosophy and political science there, uh, thought I wanted to go to law school and then pulled the gun away from my head, moved to D.C. to work in uh, digital marketing right out of undergrad. I just fell in love. I mean, just living in a, a city. Uh, I, I just absolutely love D.C., uh, it was a revelation. Started to get really interested in city planning. And, you know, I think like a lot of people in my generation, I'd grown up playing SimCity. Uh, you know, I guess nowadays kids grow up playing city skylines. I- I'd grown up thinking about cities, but but really just feeling the the incredible change in, in how you live based on how your built environment uh, is planned uh, really hit me when I moved to a place like D.C. So from there, I went and got my master's of planning degree at Rutgers University, which is in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, smack between New York and, and Philly, which was uh, a fantastic place to be if you love cities. Moved up to New York City and worked as a, a city planner for the Department of City Planning. Uh, I worked in the Queens office, uh, Central Queens, for those who know New York, Forest Hills, Regal Park, uh, Fresh Meadows, Jamaica. Um, and that was an incredible experience. But uh, in 2020, I came out to L.A. to start on a Ph.D. at UCLA, uh, still working on it. Uh, and now I work at California Yembe. We're the premier group working to make it easier to build housing in California. I don't know if you've heard, but it's very hard to build housing in California. <laughs> and uh, that's why we're so darn expensive. But we're working on it. And we're making a lot of exciting progress. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's incredible. Um, I, I'd spent recently, and, and I'll talk a little bit about this later on in the episode, but spent some time in Queens in early March. Um, so very different, you know, how everything is laid out in a place like New York, even so than a place like Atlanta or like Lexington or Richmond or Pikeville. Um, but 
really what, what I want to get into, Nolan, is, is your book, um, which is, is what you talked about at the summit, um, Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Could you tell us a, a brief about your book and um, you know the inspiration behind it and, and how all mm-hmm. of this came to be? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I've been thinking and chewing upon these issues for a while. Um, you know, when you start to learn about what zoning is and where zoning comes from, uh, you, you can really go down the rabbit hole. All right. Because these are the rules that define every minor parameter of what your community looks like, where you can and can't build housing, where you can and can't start a business, what that home has to look like, the number of parking spaces that business has to provide. Um, all of these incredibly minor details that, that, that shape the way we live are defined by local zoning codes that most people just politely try to ignore. And I don't blame them. Right. But when you start to scratch away at the surface there and see what these rules are and what they're doing, um, it's hard to think about just about anything else. I found that in the late 2010s, as most cities were wrestling with housing affordability issues, um, you know, zoning would come up, uh, you know, on the editorial pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post, you know, elected officials. I mean, Trump was of all against all odds running on zoning for or against uh, in 2020. It started to become a major issue that folks seemed to want to think about, but there wasn't a specific book or resource I could send people to, to say, this is what zoning is. This is where it comes from. This is what's gone wrong with it. And this is how we need to fix it. Um, and so that's what I was trying to accomplish with the book is have that resource, that one go-to resource uh, that folks could just pick up and, and, you know, uh, understand zoning. I say it's the first zoning beach read. So you can, uh, you can, you can take it to the beach. Uh, and uh, if you're coming from Pikeville, you're probably going to Myrtle beach. You can on Myrtle beach uh, crank through arbitrary lines in a long weekend. Well, it's funny you say that because I read the book um, on the beach in Jekyll Island, which is in Georgia on the coast. Great. Um, that was I was there, I guess, a couple couple weeks ago and cranked through it. The way you've the way you've laid out the book, it makes it very easy to read and understand. Again, for someone that has no no background or prior um, knowledge, understanding on zoning. Now I have a really good feel for it and, I've, and I can have a conversation on it. And the way you break it down, I, I really like how you do it because obviously you're you're going with how zoning has broke the American city, how it's hmm. how it's been bad. But you also, you know, you, you break down the history, you talk about the bad things, but you also talk about the good things. And you talk about why zoning was, you know, put in place in the first place and why zoning can be used as a as a good solution. And then you also give in the very end of the book, you talk about you know, how can we abolish zoning and what can we do um, instead? And that's when you talk about Houston, the city of Houston, and you really break down what they're doing. So great book. I would advise anyone that's listening <laughs> to listen, I mean, to, to read the book, um, just because it's really eye-opening, really how you look at cities. Um, even growing up, I can look back at the, the town that I grew up in and I'm reading, I'm reading through your book and I'm like, wow, this is, it's like I'm, I can picture the exact part of town that you're talking about. If you were to break down zoning in, in the simplest terms possible that you could, um, again, the listeners might not have a, a great understanding of the topic, but if you could break that down very simply, how, how would you do that? Yeah, sure. So zoning is a state delegated power to local governments to essentially do two things. Uh, the first is to draw up a, 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 a zoning map that assigns every single parcel in a city to a zoning district. 
So saying for every single every single parcel, every square inch of land in a city, it's going to be assigned a zoning district. And then you write a zoning code that says for every single one of those districts, there are two major rules. The first is what land uses you can and cannot build on that property. So we're saying for the entire city, dividing up where every single residential, commercial, industrial, but then even within that, single family homes versus apartments, duplexes versus townhouses. We say every single parcel in the city, this is it is not allowed on every given parcel. Same with commercial, right? Certain types of businesses are allowed here, but not there. Uh, retail might be allowed here, but only office space there. Then of course, most people know about industrial, light or heavy industrial. Those are the first set of rules is segregating land uses all across the city. The second set of rules are restricting densities. So you have this whole thicket of rules that say, okay, if you want to build on this parcel, you have to have a front yard that's 25 feet. If you want to build on this parcel, the maximum height limit is 40 feet. If you want to build on that parcel, maximum lot coverage is 30, 40, 50%. You get this thicket of rules that essentially place really tight restrictions on the amount of housing or commercial floor space or industrial floor space that can be built on any given lot. And from these rules emerges a very particular pattern of development that has a few unique features. Most people know about zoning and they think, well, zoning is mostly about separating residential and industrial. And that's really a very small part of what zoning is doing. For the most part, industrial and residential kind of naturally separate. They have different location needs. And of course, no industrial use wants to be near complaining neighbors. Most of what this zoning is doing is it's essentially writing into law a notion of what a good city uh, or a good community should look like. So the vast majority of your typical American city, for example, will be reserved for detached single-family homes. That is to say, in most residential areas of the U.S., it will be illegal to build a duplex or some townhouses on your lot. Um, you know, it's also predicated on this notion of work and play and shopping and 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 home life are all going to be separate. They're going to be physically separate, and you're going to drive between them. It's very different from what cities historically look like. And I'm not talking, you know about Manhattan, I'm talking about go, you can find your typical pre-zoning neighborhood, maybe a, a neighborhood in your community that was built in the 19 uh, teens, right before zoning was adopted. And there will be a mixture of housing typologies. There might be a detached single family homes next to a small fourplex uh, with a corner grocery, right? Zoning is, is saying, well, that pattern of development is now illegal. We're moving over to this pattern of development where all of that's going to be physically separated and you're going to drive uh, between these spaces. Basically, zoning is regulating use and density and everything. I mean, it's it's that sounds simple, but it's a lot more complex um, than that once you get into all the different use cases like you're mentioning. And, and you talked about SimCity in the beginning. I, I, I played SimCity growing up, and I always thought, I was like, a great idea would be to mix a game like SimCity and GTA together because GTA, <laughs> you have the crime aspect. How are you going to you know figure out crime? SimCity, you're, you're city planning, you're putting buildings and putting uh, people in different locations. And maybe, possibly, um, as the metaverse, you know, in the future, there might be something like that, like the movie Ready Player One, something along those, along those lines. But looking at zoning from the beginning, um, it looks like in 1916, zoning was first introduced in the U.S. And president, uh, he wasn't president at the time that he became president, Herbert Hoover had a huge influence on zoning. So could you talk about why zoning was created in the beginning and how, you know, how it was created? Yeah, absolutely. So the first zoning code started to come online in 1916. Um, in the book, I tell 
uh, I think it was six cities adopt zoning in 1916. In the book, I tell the story of Berkeley, California, and New York City. Most folks are somewhat familiar with the New York story. You know, most people think, oh, yeah, zoning started in New York City. But but there were five other cities that adopted zoning in 1916. Um, you know, I think there are a few things going on here. First, I think for sure there is the form of cities is changing dramatically during this period. You have two dr- inventions that are completely reshaping cities. So the first is just innovations um, that allow for buildings to get taller and taller, right? So steel framing, uh, safety lock elevator. These are inventions that essentially remove historical physical caps on cities building up. Another invention that you have at the time that dramatically changes the form of cities is the car. It's probably the most important invention for understanding why modern cities look the way they do. Um, A dramatically different uh, uh, vision of of how to get around. Uh, Of course, it allows for properties further and further from the city to be within a reasonable maybe 30-minute commute. So you see cities start to grow up and out during this period. And then, of course, this is a period of dramatic growth for the United States. So we have huge waves of immigration coming in, uh, population migrations within the U.S., the great migration of African-Americans out of the South to the Midwest and the Northeast, of course, is, is, is ongoing in this period. So you have these huge population fluctuations. And I think there's a very sympathetic view of what zoning is trying to do during this period of, well, this is really chaotic. This is really disorderly. Let's just impose a broad, big picture plan uh, to make sure that incompatible uses are separate and to make sure that we're coordinating growth with infrastructure. And I think there's certainly a little bit of that story there that that is that is important. But another thing that's going on during this period is a fairly explicit attempt to segregate cities. Um, right. So you read, for example, uh, 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 the Berkeley case uh, or, the, or the New York City case, and they're saying, well, we need to adopt these rules because we want to segregate by, by being able to separate certain types of uses and at certain densities, we can effectively separate people. Uh, so in the New York City case, of course, they're very offended. Uh, the Fifth Avenue Association is very offended by industrial uses coming in, not because of any nuisance or externality, but because of the poor Eastern European Jewish factory girls who were coming onto the Fifth Avenue on their lunch break or after work and scaring away their clientele. Um, so there's, a, you know, and you see this all across the country in, in Upper South, you know, of returning to my home state, Louisville, for example, Louisville adopts a code that is superficially race neutral, but it was adopted in the immediate aftermath of Buchanan v. Worley, where the Supreme Court says we're not going to allow for explicitly racial uh, zoning. Prior to uh, uh, 1917, Louisville had had a zoning code that, you know, a very South Africa style zoning code that said whites can live here and blacks can live there. And the Supreme Court, in a rare moment of clarity on racial issues from this time period, says, well, we're not going to allow that. That's unconstitutional. You can't forbid uh, whites and blacks from living in certain places. But what they do in the aftermath of that is they write codes that effectively achieve the same result. Because the ability to determine who gets to live where is the ability to determine, uh, uh, or excuse me, the ability to determine what gets built where is the ability to determine who gets to live where. So if you can say, well, you're only allowed to live in this neighborhood if you can afford a detached single family home on a half acre lot. Well, you're essentially excluding a lot of lower income folks. And of course, in the U.S. context, that has has, has racial implications. There's also, I think, a, a very particular vision of what cities should look like that's rooted in uh, this time period, right? So it, in Berkeley, right, the, the purpose of the Berkeley Code was Berkeley was the genesis of a policy called single-family zoning, which is where we say, okay, in huge sections of our cities, the only thing you can build is a detached single-family home. And that's not predicated on any health or safety concern. That's predicated on an idea of, well, we want to be a low-density city with big lawns and everybody has their own home and we don't want 
you know, mixture of uses. It's 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 very it's a very value laden idea of what a city should look like, uh, and it's essentially one group of people imposing their vision of what they want their community to, to look like on everybody else. Um, so you have these cities all sort of variously adopting their own local codes. And then of course, as you mentioned, uh, then secretary of the department of commerce, uh, Herbert Hoover, uh, draws up what's called the standard zoning enabling act. It starts distributing, distributing this in the 1920s, early 1920s to every state government saying, here is standard legislation to authorize all of your local jurisdictions to start adopting zoning. Um, and it's an interesting document. It's very short. I mean, laws used to be nice like that, right? Like they used to actually be like 10 pages. Um, so you can go read the Standard Zoning Enabling Act. And it's, it's fascinating because it's very it's just process oriented. Here's the basic process of how you're going to adopt zoning. And then local jurisdictions, you can kind of do whatever you like within that. Um, that starts to spread. Many states adopt the Standard Zoning Enabling Act. And then in 1926, the Supreme Court uh, decides on the constitutionality of zoning in uh, uh, Euclid v. Ambler, which was a case where um, a, a property owner in Euclid, Ohio, um, had had their property significantly downzoned when the jurisdiction adopted zoning. So they were no longer allowed to build the industrial on that lot that was probably very well suited to industrial. They sued. The case really turned on, hey, is it okay to do this thing, single family zoning? This really does seem like a bridge beyond basic health and safety regulation. And um, in a decision that referred to apartments as mere pests, um, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of zoning. Um, and it's uh, been all downhill from there. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, from, from the history, um, and, and thank you so much for breaking it down, looking at the history and, and how zoning came to be, and then looking at zoning today, mm. you know, how much has it changed since its inception all the way back in, in 1916? That's a really great question. Uh, it's changed dramatically. It's changed dramatically. So um, you can, same thing, you can go read the New York City 1916 zoning resolution. Very short, uh, very short document. Um, nowadays, of course, these zoning codes are in many cases hundreds, if not thousands of pages long for your typical big city. You know, you once, you, you once might have had, you know, a dozen different zoning districts. Now you're going to have potentially uh, in the hundreds. Um a few other things that have changed. So, I mean, the rules have just become broadly much, much, much more complex and more prescriptive and more limiting on what you can and can't do with your property. Something that's also happened, though, that I think is it's subtle, but it's important is as originally envisioned with zoning, the idea was if you follow the rules, you know, you check the boxes, you get your permits, no problem, right? So, okay, I'm in a commercial district. The height is X, the setbacks are Y, the parking required is Z. I meet all those requirements. I get my permits, no problem. Fair, the whole idea, that was one of the selling points of early zoning is we're going to make it extremely predictable what can and can't be built on every single parcel. Something that's happened over the last 50 to 70 years in particular is that we've moved over to a much more discretionary system where it's not, hey, follow the rules and you get your permits. It's much more, hey, come and ask this planning commission or come and ask city council what you are and are not allowed to build. And the rules are often very opaque. Part of that's been by accident. So because... Because our zoning rules are so restrictive, it's just impossible to build anything, what we call as of right or by right. In most U.S. cities, that means you just go in and get your permits if you follow the rules. So you have to request some sort of relief from those rules, and that puts you in this discretionary permitting world. But also, we've done it fairly explicitly. So we now just say, all right, rather than having a set of rules that are predictable and equitably enforced, we're going to have a whole bunch of discretionary mechanisms where we might give permits out 
uh, to who you are based on, you know, whether or not we like you. Of course, here in Los Angeles, we've had, we have uh, you know, come to be extremely reliant on discretionary permitting and, and not incidentally, we've had multiple um, uh, uh, local elected officials be indicted for corruption. So this ends up becoming a major source of corruption where council members say, oh, I have the power to approve or deny projects. And they use that, uh, of course, for soft corruption to raise money for elections and then explicit corruption for duffel bags of cash under bathroom stalls in Palm Springs, right? <laughs> so um, that's 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 broadly the contours of how it's changed. And, and, and there's a lot of regional variety here, right? So this is, I think, another really important point is that um, zoning is much more restrictive in certain parts of the country than it is in others. And then, of course, even regardless of what the rules are in the books, the culture of growth really affects how those rules get implemented. So, for example, in many places, they might have really restrictive rules, but they have a lot of discretionary mechanisms. And there's this pro-growth culture of, well, let's just give out permits to anything and everything. Uh, so it really, really varies a lot. And it's kind of actually it's hard to speak in such broad brushstrokes about zoning, because really the way you should learn about zoning is start, you know, crack open your local code, start reading about local uh, development applications and fights, maybe show up, you know, at a public hearing and start to learn about the local politics around, around your local rules. You start to do that. You, uh, you know, as I said, at the top of the talk, you will fundamentally start to understand why your city looks the way it does. So looking at some of the good things of zoning and really, I mean, we, we talked about why zoning was created. You know, we, we talked about some of the bad things, you know, how it segregates, um, based on class and race, um, and that, that's kind of happened from the beginning, from the get-go. But if we were to talk to more of the uh, the good things of zoning, what would some of those be? So I think I think a zoning proponent would say two things. The first is there are certain incompatible neighbors, and we need to make sure that they're separate, right? So you don't want heavy industry near residential areas. You don't want something like a sex shop right next to an elementary school or a liquor store next to a, a high school. Uh, you don't want, um, you know, a 24 hour self-service car wash next to an apartment building, ideally. Right. Um, I can, as I argue in the book, I think zoning has done a very, very, very poor job of achieving that desirable separation. Uh, but that's a think a reason why folks often uh, are sympathetic to these rules. The second is, of course, you want to make sure that you're coordinating growth with infrastructure. If you're going to have long term growth, you're going to have a lot of new apartments or, or homes, uh, single family homes built, you need to make sure that you've got the water and sewer lined up uh, to accommodate those projects. If you're going to have a major new commercial use, you need to make sure that you're uh, uh, ex- you know, scaling up the transit or uh, uh, expanding uh, the streets uh, to accommodate uh, you know, additional traffic or certainly in the case where you have uh, industrial uh, traffic, which you know, might require a certain Terran radii for certain trucks to get in. So there's all these basic sort of very wonky, unsexy uh, service provision considerations that need to be made with growth. Same thing with that, though. As I argue in the book, I think the more effective strategy there is rather than saying, well, we're going to force the growth to look like what our infrastructure allows. I think the much more sustainable path there is to say, well, there's certain types of growth that's coming. Let's let's do our best to predict it. And then let's start making the infrastructure investments needed to accommodate that. So Nolan, this this podcast, um, I created it um, because there was a lot of education that I felt needed to be spread around sustainability and the environment. And you know, someone my age, I was I was looking all around to figure out, you know, what is sustainability and what are all of these different types of sustainability. I mean, what what is LEED certification? What is 
you know, X, Y, Z, and I, and I couldn't really find anything. So I created this podcast and I really wanted to bring together um, innovators, activists, and government leaders in sustainability. And one person that I had on, um, this is interesting, his name was Blake Jackson, and he's the director of sustainability at NOR. He's out of Boston. And it's interesting because what you're doing with, with zoning, it's almost like the precursor to what they're doing. With zoning, you are you are basically saying where you can and can't build. And what Nora's doing is they're trying to build more um, environmentally friendly buildings and, and infrastructure. So um, I say all this because the next segment I want to get into is the environmental impact of zoning. Um, and from your book, um, one thing that I that I read was this aspect of the environmental review of a building project, mm-hmm. which I am completely unfamiliar with. And just for my own sake, I kind of want to understand what that means and, and kind of how that process happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this this you probably haven't seen this touchdown in a place like Georgia or Kentucky or or, or Tennessee, uh, but in a handful of U.S. states, if the government is doing something discretionary so meaning they don't they have a choice over whether or not to do something um they have to complete an environmental report so the idea is that they have to go out and study any possible environmental impact of the project and disclose it um these rules came in the aftermath of you know uh the 60s and 70s where you know big freeway construction uh projects uh, you know large-scale uh damming projects uh, large scale public housing, these really major projects that really did have substantial uh, um, environmental impacts that that should have been studied and should have been disclosed. But what's happened over the last 50 or 60 years is that those environmental review requirements have been extended to apply to everything discretionary. So even if, for example, let's say I own, let's say I own a, 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 a strip mall that's half empty and I want to take it, redevelop it, turn it into, you know, a five over one ground floor commercial with three or four uh, floors of, of, of residences over top. Um, I think by any reasonable metric, that's an improvement for the environment to the extent that uh, that's going to be more land efficient. That's going to, the people who live in those units are going to be less likely to have to take a lot of long car trips. And then of course, multifamily is just more energy efficient than detached single family homes. But because that project has to come in and get a rezoning uh, it now has to complete an environmental report. And not just that, but once it completes an environmental report, because the way we've structured these is that if somebody feels that the report wasn't done uh, appropriately, uh, they can essentially uh, initiate litigation to stop or delay the project. Um, and this is often used in bad faith by folks who are by folks who are just opposed to what's being built, or maybe they want some sort of concession out of it. Maybe a union that wants a labor agreement out of it, or a competing business owner who just wants to kill the project altogether, or local NIMBYs who just don't like the idea of more housing getting built near them. So here in California, we have the the, the CEQA, uh, California Environmental Quality Act, which is imposes these environmental review mandates on, on almost everything that gets built. And that's, you know, I think what it was, was a, it was a well-meaning uh, environmental me- mechanism for large-scale projects that should actu- actually do this study and should do this disclosure, but it got applied to anything and everything. And now I think a lot of uh, environmentalists will even say this, it now actually works against uh, environmental and sustainability uh, objectives to the extent that it just makes it really, really hard to build uh, uh, infill housing or, or offices and, and jobs in, in places near transit uh, or in existing cities. 
Um, so here in California, a lot of the work has been, well, how do we exempt more and more projects from having to go through this process just to make it easier uh, uh, to, to build the type of infill housing and job centers that we need? So for most of the listeners, they have been to a large city. And one thing that they will notice is there's something very different in a large city compared to a normal size or small city. And that's the aspect of skyscrapers or these mm. these large buildings that have been built up and built up and built up. I know in Atlanta, we have a lot of skyscrapers. We have a lot of um, condominiums, a lot of apartment complexes. And in New York, same thing. L.A., I've never been to California, but I'm guessing same same type of thing. So this concept of building up versus building out in you know, how that affects the environment, that's a very interesting conversation because I've, I've never thought of it that way. But it makes a lot of sense because if you're building up, you're taking up less land um, and you're taking up really space that was given to us. Could you talk about that concept of building up versus building out and its effect on the overall environment? Yeah, this I mean, this is really fundamental, right? I mean, you know, there's a great book that, that your listeners should absolutely check out, Order Without Design by Alain Berteau. He's the former urban planner for the World Bank. Uh, and he sets it out, I think, very neatly. I'll, I'll give a, a, a slightly sloppier version here in this talk, but folks will go pick up that book. You know, essentially the problem of cities is that humans actually like to be somewhat concentrated, right? They want to be around friends and family. They want to be near a lot of jobs. They want to be near amenities and, and shops uh, and services. Right. Um, <clears throat> the problem is that um, humans want to concentrate in one place, but we have a finite amount of land uh, in any given place. Right. That's land that's within 30 minutes of all of those things that people want in life. And so what you get is high demand to live in certain central places. Right. This is this varies based on the land use. So, for example, a major employer really wants to be at the center of the metropolitan area. So they have the largest possible pool from which to attract talent. Um, uh, or shops, for example, really want to make sure that they're on major corridors so they have the most amount of traffic going by them. But essentially, we have this problem of <clears throat> a lot of people want to live in a handful of places. And how do you solve that problem? Um, well, one way to solve that problem is to say, well, we can build up rather than build out. So a lot of people actually want to live in places uh, uh, like central Atlanta or Manhattan or downtown L.A., and we solved this problem by saying, well, we can't build a bunch of detached single family homes down there, but we can build up and have many hundreds of units on the same parcel, allowing people to be in these job rich or transit rich or service rich uh, areas. Um, and and it's when you understand these rules and when you understand, you know, how sort of humans broadly form communities, you can start to under you can look at cities all across the world and start to see familiar patterns. So. Basically, everywhere you look outside of centrally planned uh, governments in places like the USSR and North Korea, human settlement follows a consistent pattern of really, really high density at the center that, that tapers out as you go outward from the center. And that's because there's this sort of shared desire to be at the center of, of the metropolitan area where you're going to have the best access to, to uh, everything that that place has to offer. Um, and when you understand these sort of broader patterns that happen, and this is this is revealed too. It's not by, this is not a planned thing, but this manifests itself through land prices. So what we do is a lot of people want to be at a certain place. And so they bid up the price of that land. And so to be the person uh, that is able to acquire that land, you have to be the most efficient land user. And often that's a person who will uh, build up 
and allow many people uh, to be on that same little patch of land. And you can see if you understand land prices and if you understand these these consistent patterns of human development, you can really start to understand why our cities look the way they do. Um, zoning, of course, as I point out in the book, often pushes back against that and forces cities to have a more low rise spread out uh, pattern of development, not for any health or safety reasons, but about cultural notions of what a city should and shouldn't look like. So it's, it's funny you talk about cities. Um, I recently, I, I've been in the process of interviewing for a job in, in North Georgia and Calhoun, Georgia, which Calhoun, I would say, is probably 45, 50 minutes from Atlanta, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but right around that area. And I, I, I've, been, I've been going back and forth because about where I would live if I ended up getting the job, because I love Atlanta. I would love to live in Midtown. Just everything's happening. You know, just just the people in general, the conversations you have, the the connections that you have. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely correct. People are, um, for me specifically, I was so interested in just the community in a place like Atlanta. I mean, before we hopped on this hopped on this call, I was telling you how I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I like Knoxville, but um, I was ready to get back to Atlanta just because the energy is different. Being in a big city, there's so much going on. Um, and I just I really enjoy it. And, you know, for young professionals, it's it's something that you want that you want to be in. Um, you you want to connect with other people like yourself and cities do that. So you mentioned how cities are ultimately they can ultimately be better for the environment. You know, they take up less space, they improve energy efficiency, um, and they reduce distance and increase density, which lessens the overall carbon footprint. Is there anything else that you would say that cities in general um, are better for the environment? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's mostly covered there. You know, I, I would also say, too, right, something that's kind of funny that we've done in this country is if you actually look at prices, a lot of Americans actually would slightly prefer to live in maybe a home uh, where they have less, they don't have nearly as large of a yard. Maybe the home is a little bit smaller, but they have a commute that's 25% shorter and they're maybe within walking distance of a restaurant or a bar or a doctor's office. Um, But what we do with zoning in the U.S. is we don't actually give Americans that choice. In many cases, if you want to build the walkable mixed-use neighborhood, we make it very, very, very difficult for you. But if you want to build new detached single family homes, you know, an hour, an hour and a half outside of the downtown on half acre lots with no commercial anywhere in sight, we make it very easy for you to do that. So from an environmental perspective, zoning actually gets the whole thing precisely backwards. We make it very easy to build the types of of, of growth patterns that are the most environmentally destructive. We make it hardest to build the ones that are most sustainable. Um, you know, or I'll give you another example here, something we haven't talked about too much in particular quite yet, is parking requirements. Many zoning uh, ordinances explicitly say, okay, for every for every apartment, for every townhouse you build, it's illegal to build it unless you have two parking spaces. Uh, or for if you're going to build a strip mall uh, or, uh, you know, a storefront, you have to have uh, uh, so many spaces of parking per thousand hundred square feet of, of, of commercial space. Um, now these rules seem innocuous when you state them in the abstract, but what that can mean is that for any new apartment building that you want to build, you have to build a towering parking garage or for any new commercial storefront you want to build, uh, you have to build a a giant parking lot. Um, we're essentially writing auto dependence into law with these zoning rules, um, and saying, well, no, like we're going to assume, uh, one, just a whole bunch of extra land has to be consumed. uh, A whole bunch of impervious surface has to be added. 
and, and we're just not going to give consumers the choice. And that's, you know, even if you're unmoved by the environmental aspect of that, which I do think is quite important, it's we're literally just not giving people choice about how they live. So you might have a household that says, well, yeah, we would we're perfectly fine with one parking space or no parking spaces if that means that our rent is lower or the price of the condo is lower. Or you might have a commercial storefront that says, well, most of my clientele walk or ride a bike or take the bus here. I don't need a big giant parking lot that's going to force me to raise prices. But what these zoning rules do, and they do this in so many other ways, from setbacks to height limits to uh, lot coverage rules to building design rules to minimum unit sizes, is they literally take the choice away from the consumer about the trade-offs that they can potentially make about where and how they live. So earlier you mentioned your time in Queens and, and working um, as a city planner for, for New York. Um, it's interesting. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, I spent some time, four or five days in, in Queens and in New York City specifically, visiting. One of my friends lives there. She's a, she's a dancer. And then her boyfriend um, is the one that I was staying with in Queens. And I remember when I got there, um, it was so wild for me because, you know, I take, a, take an Uber, take a taxi in. And right away, I, I dropped my stuff off at his apartment. And he's like, yeah, you want to go get some breakfast? And we walk and every block has a corner grocery store, a corner um, convenience store slash bagel shop, coffee shop. And I was like, this is crazy. I was like, you can literally walk anywhere the, mm-hmm. in, in the city or take the subway. And he's like, yeah. He said, um, I don't have a car. My girlfriend doesn't have a car. And for someone like me that grew up in North Georgia that went to school in Kentucky, where you had to drive literally everywhere um, in Pikeville, I mean, you had to drive like five miles to get anywhere <laughs> that you wanted to go for a restaurant. Right. That whole concept was was wild to me. And in the book, you touch a lot on in the early days, you had a lot of cities that were walkable cities where you could you know, walk to a corner grocery store. You could walk to basically get whatever you needed. And today that's changed. And as you allude to in your book, that's a lot, lot to do with zoning. Hmm. So, um, you know, how, how did zoning change this aspect of cities being so walkable and now where you're driving to go different places? And obviously when you're driving, you're emitting carbon into the air and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So how did zoning change this concept of a walkable city? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, even, even short of, even short of, Queens, right? I mean, most U.S. cities have these pre-zoning neighborhoods that have a mixture of commercial uses, maybe on corners separated out throughout the neighborhood, right? I mean, when the last neighborhood that I lived in in Lexington, uh, Kenwick, you know, has two or three little corner groceries spread out throughout the neighborhood. Now, of course, if you wanted to do anything like that on a subdivision today, zoning would often say, no, that's, that's illegal to do that. We are not going to allow you to actually have commercial uses that are integrated into the community. In many jurisdictions, we don't even allow people to run home-based businesses, even businesses that might not necessarily have clients or employees visiting the property. Um, you know, I mean, the real thing here is it's, it's, it's back to something that I've raised previously, which is this notion that, well, residential and commercial should be in separate places. And we're going to rationally order our city. We're going to rationally master plan our city. And there's going to be discrete districts where you live and discrete districts where you shop and where you work and everything else. Um, it's a very sort of functionalist approach to the city that doesn't actually reflect, I think, the day-to-day people that, the, the, day, the day-to-day ways that people live their lives, right? Of like, well, I, you know, a lot of people actually, we just know people, a lot of people would actually quite like to have a corner grocery near them where they can walk over to get some eggs or some flour 
you know, if they're in the heat of cooking, right? They don't want to get in the car and make a 15 minute drive out uh, 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 to, you know, a, a big giant supermarket where they are going to spend just five minutes walking from the back of the parking lot to to uh, the entrance, right? Um, many people actually really value these uses or things like, you know, a lot of these things to serve a community function, like having a neighborhood barbershop or having a neighborhood bar. These were places, these were what we call third places, places of social interaction where neighbors could meet each other and form bonds and talk about what was going on around them. Of course, nowadays, you don't get that when you have to hop in your car and drive, you know, five miles to go to your doctor's office or, 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 or leave your neighborhood to go to a coffee shop. Um, so folks actually really quite desired that. But what zoning did was it came in and said, well, we're not going to allow those communities to continue to be built. And the communities that we have that are like that, we're going to not allow them uh, to become even more uh, mixed use and dynamic. Uh, and so what we've done is we've essentially locked our communities in a straitjacket that doesn't let them grow and adapt and evolve to reflect changing needs and preferences. And I think that's why, you know, we've kind of hit the limits of growth under this old paradigm. And that's why you have all of this pressure for reform. And that's why you have this incredible energy around, you know, hey, we're not beholden to these rules that were written in many cases 100 years ago. We can rethink the rules that we have that are, are shaping our communities. So if I, if I did a quick Google search right now and I said, what is the environmental impact of zoning? Managing pollution would come up a lot. And when I did the search, you know, like a week or two ago, that, that's one thing that kept coming up is, oh, zoning helps manage pollution. And in a sense, it makes sense. I mean, if you are, if you are um, distinguishing industrial areas and residential areas, making sure that they're not too close, then you are able to basically, you know, manage pollution and, and manage emissions into a community. But I would ask you, um, someone from from your seat and, and someone that's done the research, you know, does zoning really help to manage pollution? Or hmm. is this just something that they say to, you know, almost pat themselves on the back to make it to make it look good? Yeah, I, I you know, to my mind, the most effective things we've done on pollution have been federal and state policies that essentially just say, we're going to just regulate the specific impact. So what zoning does, and and there were rules like this even before zoning, um, that say, okay, there are certain nuisance uses. They're going to offend people. They're going to upset people. Let's just make sure that they are physically separated from our residences and our sensitive uses like schools, right? Um, those those rules to me, I think, are eminently agreeable. Right. That that makes total sense. And and I want to stress this, too. Cities had rules like that even before zoning. So cities would say, hey, if you want to operate a slaughterhouse or a tannery, you either need to do it in this discrete area where we've said industrial can happen or you need to do it outside of the city limits. That was very common uh, even before the rise of zoning. All zoning adds on top of that is all of this other stuff about the appropriate form that a home can take and separating less offensive forms of commercial uses from residential areas. I mentioned Blake Jackson earlier, how he had come on and spoke just on, on, you know, building, building sustainably. But one thing that he had talked about, which I've never been to Boston before. Um, so I guess if I went to Boston, I would, I would understand this, but he talked about the, um, the building of the highway in Boston, how they moved it completely underground mm-hmm. and how they helped the flow of traffic. And basically the highway that was on the surface, they made into parks, you know, they made walkable, so I would ask you, and I don't, I don't know from a zoning perspective what this would mean, but what was the, what would you say the environmental impact of that construction was? Because mm-hmm. obviously you have projects like Elon Musk, um, what they're trying to do with, with taking, taking basically the same approach and taking these massive tunnels underneath metropolitan cities and moving traffic. But 
you know, just, just from Boston's perspective, how do you, how do you feel that that affected the environment? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, so zoning is mostly just looking at what people do on private property, right? So zoning is regulating how private property is used. Um, but I think the question that you're getting at here is that it, it absolutely is essential that we consider things like the infrastructure that gets built. Because I mean, that's the, the nature of the infrastructure that you build in your city is going to heavily shape urban form, right? If you build a bunch of infrastructure that, for example, makes it very easy for folks to get out to the suburbs, you're going to have a more sprawling city. And that's why a city like Atlanta or Dallas looks fundamentally different from a city like Boston or New York. Um, they came of age in a time where we had a very different type of infrastructure that facilitated a very different type of, of growth pattern. Um, of course, you know, things like uh, putting uh, freeways underground or or removing urban freeways altogether, I think is generally pretty low hanging fruit for jurisdictions that want to reduce things like uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and it's not just greenhouse gas emissions, even with electric cars, you get particulate matter uh, from brakes and, and tire wear. Uh, that's a, a major air quality concern. Um, these things are positive. You know, you're seeing a lot of jurisdictions too just say like, well, let's give people more transportation options. So let's invest more in our bus rapid transit. And, and have buses that actually come regularly and on time and are clean and efficient and um, actually are even more desirable than uh, car commute. Or having things like uh, multimodal paths for folks who maybe are on uh, bicycles. I mean, something, I think the, the most impressive uh, transportation trend that I've seen over the last few years is the mass adoption of electric bicycles, right? Um, and if you've ever ridden on one, I mean, you just know it's completely transformative. Um, it, you know, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world and it's incredibly comfortable. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, in a place like Atlanta, right, it's, it's going to be, it's going to mean you can have a bicycle commute, but you're not going to show up to the office drenched in sweat. Right. <laughs> um, but so giving people those options about how they get around to where we're not saying the only way you can get around your city is by you being in your own, uh, uh, your own vehicle uh, alone commuting everywhere, Giving people those options, I think that is absolutely essential too. It's not just that we need to remove barriers to infill, but we also need to be making sure that we're installing the infrastructure that allows people to 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 get around their city in the most sustainable way possible. So going going from the environment to why zoning is bad, and this is what we'll talk in uh, the next segment about. You've mentioned several reasons throughout this entire talk about why zoning is bad, but I I want to bring them all together right now and, and talk on them. And the first point that you had made was, you know, zoning, zoning segregates based on race and class. Hmm. And when I read that in the book, I was like, wow, this is this is absolutely correct. I grew up in Dalton, Georgia, which a lot of people know is the carpet capital of the world. You know, the community, um, basically what happened is you had all these large carpet manufacturers that a lot of Hispanic people were moving into Dalton to work in the factories work because there were so many jobs available and as this influx happened, it kind of shifted the entire demographics of the city of Dalton. And growing up, you know, I'd help, I would hear people in the community talk about um, Little Mexico, which was the community where all the Hispanic people lived. And now I realize it was completely racist and, you know, shouldn't shouldn't have been called that. But that's basically what happened. And you talked in the book about how there's, you know, across the train tracks, you know, across the train tracks is where communities are. And that's exactly how it was in Dalton. And, you know, it was segregated based on class and race. They made the zoning in a way where you had the wealthy, the wealthy people were in areas where they had the best access to school, best access to public services and best access to life, if we're being completely mm -hmm. honest. 
But that's one form of why zoning is bad. So could you talk about other reasons why zoning is bad? Sure. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, top of mind, I think out here in California is the relationship between a lot of these rules and housing affordability. So what are, what the zoning rules that we have on the books and not only in California, but in jurisdictions all across the country, we have rules that that limit the amount of housing that can be built that say that, you know, the housing that you can build, uh, it has to be much more expensive. So, for example, on that first piece in a place like Los Angeles, in 75 percent of the city, it's illegal to build anything other than a detached single family home. So we make it illegal to actually build the types of small apartment buildings that once kept Los Angeles affordable. Two, even in those places, though, where we allow park uh, uh, housing to be built, we have rules like minimum lot sizes that say, well, you're not allowed to have a home here unless you have 10,000 square feet of land. We're not going to allow a home maybe on a 2,500 square foot lot. You know, a traditional typology in the South, of course, is very common here is like the shotgun house, small homes on small lots that provided working class people with the path to homeownership. In many cases, those are illegal to build today on the idea of, well, if we just mandate that the housing be nicer, everybody will get a nicer home. Not, not at all. If we mandate nicer housing, the only thing we get is that the people who can't afford that nicer housing don't get to have a home at all. Um, and then finally, we just subject housing to this, you know, difficult processes of what I was getting at earlier, discretionary permitting, where we say, if you want to build maybe an apartment building on a, on a commercial corridor that's in the process of transitioning to a more mixed use corridor, we're going to have you go through public hearings. We're going to have you do an environmental report. We're going to have you, uh, you know, uh, pay off local neighborhood groups. We're going to have you go through this incredibly difficult process to do the types of things that we know our community needs. And so collectively, we know when we look out across the cities or across the states is that the cities that have the more restrictive zoning rules end up having the more expensive uh, home prices. And in a place like California, it's really reached a crisis point where, you know, the typical Californian does not have a path to homeownership, where they're spending a third to half of their income on rent. We have many families that are forced to double or triple up in bedrooms. And then, of course, we have folks who just get priced out of housing altogether and end up living on the streets or living out of cars. Um, that's it's the you know, people look at California and they like to beat up on California, but that, it's the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the country. The rules that make California have this housing crisis, the, the zoning rules that that made California so unaffordable and, and unsustainable, in many cases, they're on the books in almost every jurisdiction in America. And it's just a matter of time uh, until other jurisdictions have these crises. And that's partly why I wanted to write the book is sort of say, hey, you might not think of yourself as like a New York or a California. You have housing affordability problems now. But it's just a matter of time as if, if economies continue to grow and desirable places all across the South, for example, continue to bring people in, you're going to have to have rules that allow cities to flexibly change and adapt over time. And if you don't have them, you'll be careening toward a California style crisis. So in the book, you talk a lot about how zoning negatively impacts growth and innovations mm. inside cities. And I was in Puerto Rico last December and you know, just talking to some locals. And this was the first time I'd ever heard the term brain drain. Mm. And it, it, it makes sense in this aspect too, because with zoning, if you're making housing so unaffordable inside cities, then you're going to have people that, you know, competent people, you're going to have people that are wanting to live there, wanting, like I, like for me, I want to live in the city. I, I want to take that energy in and, and build community. But people like me, maybe I can't afford to live in the city. I'm going to have to live in a place outside, maybe Marietta, maybe Ackworth, maybe Woodstock. And the city, like let's say a midtown, you could have this aspect of brain drain because people can't afford it. 
And, you know, going going back to this aspect of, of how zoning affects growth and innovation, how would you say, you know, that's one piece, but how would you say zoning does affect growth and innovation inside these larger metropolitan cities? Well, you know, something that's extremely well established is that, that cities are these engines of growth and innovation, right? Cities are places where folks can come together and be around other people who are working on the same issues as them, thinking through the same problems as them. This is why all throughout history, right, like genius is concentrated in certain places, you know, ancient Athens, Renaissance, Florence, you know, Scottish Enlightenment in Edinburgh, right, uh, Harlem Renaissance. There, We always speak in terms of these like great technological engineering cultural booms uh, happening in specific places. When you get a lot of people together and you have these thick labor markets where people can find the perfect job for them or talk to other folks working on the same issue as them or be close to suppliers or, or consumers of their product, everything just gets so much more efficient and innovative and productive. And so to the extent that, for example, in the U.S. today, we make it hard for a young software engineer to move to the Bay Area, or we make it hard for somebody who wants to go into finance to move to New York, or we make it hard for a young medical engineer to move to uh, uh, Boston, uh, problems that are going to increasingly extend all across the Mountain West and the South as well, our country is just collectively poor and less innovative. And there's very robust evidence on this, that America would be a much more uh, wealthy, productive place if we allowed made it very easy for folks to move into the labor markets where they could add the most um, value. But this is true, I think, and it's true to a certain extent in every jurisdiction already, right? You know, I, there's so many places that deal with brain drain and, and I, I'll look, you know, I'll look at the housing stock that they have available and I'll say, well, like, okay, let's say a person graduates from the University of Kentucky, for example, and they want to stay in Lexington, uh, but maybe they want to live in a more, you know, they want to do things that many young people want to do. They want to live in a more walkable neighborhood where they have easy access to bars and, and entertainment and nightlife. Uh, and they don't want to move straight out to the single family tract out in the suburbs. What housing options do they have? In many U.S. cities, we make it hardest to build the types of small apartments, uh, especially micro apartments that are well suited to young single young professionals uh, that would keep those people in the city. And I say, well, there's literally no option for that person to stay in the city and live the type of urban lifestyle that a lot of young professionals want to live today. So if you want to keep talent in your city and in your region, you have to offer those range of housing types uh, uh, that, 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 that keep a variety of people in your community. And again, allow for that flexibility, right? Or if you want to have an entrepreneurial culture in your community, don't make it to where the person who is wanting to start a small business that maybe doesn't fit to the narrow confines of your current zoning, don't make it to where that person gets punished, um, as, as is so often the case. You know, I've talked about home-based businesses. This is an issue near and dear to my heart. We have rules on the books in so many cities that say, well, if you want to start a home-based business, you have to come in and ask for a special permit, and you have to host a public hearing, and you have to notice all of your neighbors. We're literally punishing people doing the type of entrepreneurial innovative innovative work that that, that that cities if it's an amazon right like we give subsidies we want amazon to come in but if somebody's trying to start the next amazon in their garage we make their life really really difficult um and that to me is part and parcel of a broader problem of this notion of well, we're going to sit down and plan out and micromanage every detail of our cities we have to take a very different paradigm and say well let's create a framework where our cities can grow and be dynamic and change over time but in a way that enriches everybody's quality of life along the way so, you know, we've talked about the history of zoning. You did an excellent job breaking it down in simple terms so everyone can understand. We've talked about the good of zoning. We've talked about the environmental impact of zoning. And now we've talked about the, the bad of zoning. So now what, what, what I want to understand is, okay, if zoning is, is 
bad. And, and obviously, I mean, there, there's evidence that, you know, it does all these things. You know, what can be done instead of zoning? Um, mm. is, there, is there something that can replace zoning in the future? Well, so in the near term, I think there's a lot of opportunity for reform. So getting rid of some of the worst rules that do the most harm. You know, you have a lot of cities all across the country, of course, starting with Minneapolis, getting rid of single family zoning and saying, we'll allow for a mixture of housing typologies in all of our neighborhoods. You can build duplexes and fourplexes in, in any Minneapolis neighborhood today. That's great, right? That's easy stuff. Uh, allow for more, allow for multifamily in your commercial districts to allow your tired old strip malls and, and uh, office buildings to be converted into mixed use communities. Getting rid of your parking requirements. We just know that the parking requirement rules are not necessary and do a lot of damage. Um, lower your minimum lot sizes. Allow for homes on smaller lots that are going to be more affordable and allow families to make that trade-off uh, between land and location. There's a whole bunch of low-hanging fruit here. Here in California, we've done a lot of this stuff over the last few years that's hopefully starting to turn the ship around on our housing affordability crisis. Um, local governments, of course, can adopt these reforms, but we also need state governments to step in and put guardrails around how local governments administer these powers to make sure that they're not misusing uh, these zoning rules that were delegated to them by the state. Um, but bigger picture, you know, what I'm trying to get planners and practitioners to think more about is, you know, what do we want land use planning to do? So returning back to, you know, your question of what is zoning good for, there are important things that we need from land use planning. We do need to make sure that, you know, incompatible neighbors are kept separate, right? We do need to make sure that if I am generating a bunch of noise or a bunch of traffic or a bunch of smoke, that there are rules in place that protect all of my neighbors. You know, zoning solves those problems by saying, well, we're just going to put you far away or we're going to even worse, we're going to put you in the low income neighborhood. But we can actually, I think, better regulate the actual things uh, that bother people. Second is coordinating growth with infrastructure. You know, I think in the U.S. we've taken this approach of, well, we're just only going to allow growth on our terms uh, to fit the existing infrastructure or the growth that we want. And of course, what that's done is it's put our cities in straitjackets, locked them in amber to where they can't grow and adapt over time. I think we need to take the opposite approach and say, well, certain types of growth is coming. It's happening. Let's sit down and plan out our infrastructure, plan out a street grid, plan out a system of parks, plan out where the schools are going to go, plan out to make sure that we're going to actually steer growth away from environmentally sensitive areas that are maybe flood prone or fire prone, depending on where you are in the country. Um, that's the type of real nuts and bolts planning work that actually creates value for people and enriches people's lives and protects our environment. That's really where I think we should be focusing our efforts, not on micromanaging the number of parking spaces and strip malls or, you know, keeping duplexes out of cul-de-sacs. Um, I, you know, it's a big picture generational project, but I think, you know, we look back at folks who were writing zoning codes in the 1920s and they had no, uh, they had no uh, concern whatsoever about saying, well, let's radically rethink our institutions. Why should we not, I think, have that level of boldness? Uh, you know, why should we not uh, be brave enough to say, well, the current system hasn't worked, but let's put our heads together and come up with a system that does. That's partly what I'm inviting readers to do in the last third of the book. And I've noticed that the uptake among planners has been really exceptional. A lot of planners are like, yeah, we recognize our current system is broken and we're excited about building the system that comes next. So it's funny, Nolan, because when I was reading your book, I came across, um, you know, your section talking about Houston, Texas. And I went back um, and, and, and it piqued my, my brain because I remember when we were talking with, with a group of people in, in Salt Lake City and you asked us all a question. You said, what is 
what are some of the most underrated cities in the U.S. that you've been to? You know, the other guys had great examples. And I was like, I, you know, I haven't traveled that much, but I would say I, I really like Chattanooga, Tennessee. You were like, well, have y'all been to Houston? And Houston is this incredible city. Um, and you kept talking about it. And I've never been to Texas. But then I got to the book and I was like, OK, it makes sense. Um, he, he, the research is there. Why Houston um, is, is this great place? Because Houston does not have zoning. What they have instead is this aspect of uh, deed restrictions, and it's allowed them to continue to innovate. It's allowed them to continue to grow their population, um, and Houston's really been able to do some really cool things. So I, I thought that was really funny uh, because you kept talking about Houston in, in our conversation, and I was like, wow, I, I actually need to go look into Houston and then see what they're doing. It's an incredibly fascinating place. Yeah, it's the only major American city that didn't adopt zoning. They didn't adopt zoning because it's the only major American city that actually put zoning to a vote and voters turned it down three times. And, you know, I think, of course, Houston is not an all purpose model for planning. But to the extent that they didn't make one mistake, they didn't adopt zoning and subject their city to rigid use segregation and density controls. I actually think there's a lot to be learned there. And I actually think Houston is in a really strong position to grow and adapt and solve some of the other mistakes that it made in terms of planning. And you see this when you go to Houston. I mean, just the scale of the infill townhouse and multifamily building boom is remarkable that the speed at which neighborhoods are becoming better and more mixed use and resilient is 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 really exceptional um and then of course it's also just probably the best food city in america (laughs) (laughs) so so the final segment that we'll talk about on this on this show will will be a a small case study on pikeville kentucky pikeville's Mm -hmm. near and dear to my heart you know i went to pikeville lived in pikeville for two years but um, I wanted to to get into Pikeville and really understand their zoning code um, with with an expert like yourself. But the first thing I want to get into is, is give the the listeners a little bit of an understanding of the city of Pikeville. Um, so Pikeville, back in the 1970s, it often suffered from devastating flooding, congestion, and smoke from from the train that ran through town, and it was running out of flat land on which to build. And this crazy idea was then proposed to move an unheard amount of earth to create a cut through to alleviate these issues. And although definitely unusual, this massive project officially began in November of 1973 and the Pikeville cut through project would happen in four phases over 14 years and would require an impressive number of people, businesses and agencies of all levels to work together to see it through. And this, you know, approximately $80 million project was completed four years later in 1987 or 14 years later in 1987 and it became the second largest earth-moving project our country has ever seen, second only to the Panama Canal. And Nolan, what if I told you I read that on a wall in a um, in a gas station in Pikeville? That's that's where I learned about <laughs> that whole story. Uh, I, I kid you not. Um, and Pikeville is this, is this really cool place, um, and the cut through is really cool. I mean, you can you can literally when you're driving in, you can see where they moved this land. But besides the point on on the history of Pikeville. Pikeville, um, I went to the university and there's still a big issue on land availability. Hmm. Um, the university was built on the side of a mountain, literally like on the side of a mountain and parking is a nightmare. Um, I, I could get into all the stories of, of how I hated parking on the university campus, but parking was a nightmare and just housing availability was so um, bad in the city that a lot of my professors didn't even live in the city of Pikeville. Either it was too expensive or, you know, there wasn't availability. 
So with all of that said, um, mm-hmm. I would like to ask you in this rural small town of Pikeville, Kentucky, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on zoning um, in this specific area. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm endlessly fascinated by Pikeville. I mean, I, as you sort of said, it's I think it's a unique context in that it's one of these, you know, Appalachian towns that is feeling, you know, quite a bit of growth pressure thanks to the university. And that's a that's a that's a blessing and a curse. Of course, you know, folks complain about the problems of of growing pains, but you know, a place that's shrinking is is much much worse to be off in, right? So, uh, first, just level setting. It's a good problem to have. A lot of people want to live in Pikeville. Uh, you know, it's going to be this key anchor for the region going forward with the university. But I think, as you say, that the issue that they have is uh, there. This is a unique context, and there's a there's not unlimited flat land, right? I mean, this is why cities like uh, uh, um, you know, Charlotte or, uh, you know, a, a Nashville can remain affordable, right? Cause they just continue to sprawl out. They kind of have unlimited flat land, uh, you know, outside of the city. They can just continue to build out. If they need more housing, they just build another subdivision. That is not an option in a place like Pikeville In a place like Pikeville to remain affordable over time. You're going to have to actually use the existing flat land that you have more intensively. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's a much harder thing for folks to deal with. You know, I think, of course, everybody wants their community to never change. But this is where I think it's important to say to level set. Right. Um, you know, your community can either change in terms of the built environment changing over time. You're building more buildings, you're building maybe more apartment buildings, more mixed use buildings in the urban area of Pikeville or your community can change demographically and your communities can become more affordable, working class people, uh, students. Uh, university administrators are going to have to leave the city and commute in. Uh, those are your options, right? So if you want to keep Pikeville this dynamic place that's high opportunity and where folks can come to uh, and, and stay within the region, but dramatically improve their their access to jobs and services, you need to actually be having the city grow and change and adapt over time. Um, and, you know, I, again, not an expert on Pikeville zoning, but like many Appalachian towns that I've 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 studied here, they have a very conventional code that essentially is very, very prescriptive and says, you know, it's going to be um, here are the here are the very, very, very specific rules for everything you can and can't build. Um, and ironically, a cocktail of rules that in many cases would make it illegal to build a lot of the existing urban area of the city, if not illegal, uh, needlessly quite difficult. So I would say, you know, as a city that's 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 going to have sustained growth pressure, going through your your land use rules and say what actually in here is needed to protect people's quality of life. What actually in here is needed to, to make sure that we're growing in a sustainable and resilient way. And then what's actually standing in the way of that? You know, there's, there are a whole bunch of rules in so many of these, these codes and Pikeville as in almost every other city in the country where the, the rules are actually mandating things that are actively in tension with planning goals. So a place like Pikeville, for example, the long-term health of a place like Pikeville is going to look like the core street grid becoming a little bit denser, more multifamily getting built that serves students and young professionals who work for the university, that serves the service workers who clean the floors and cook the food. Um, that's going to involve using some of that existing land that's near the university and job centers uh, uh, more intensively. Um, and so I would say, you know, crack open the zoning code and, and really review what you have on the books with an eye toward making it very easy to build the type of infill that's going to be needed to keep the city affordable and sustainable in the long term. So you talk a lot about minimum parking requirements um, and how that's a that's a, a bad aspect of zoning. And the first time I ever heard that was actually walking 
along the university across the street with a couple of our business professors. And I'd asked them, I said, why don't they develop, you know, this old building into apartment units? Why don't, why don't they make it multifamily? Exactly what you're saying. And they said, it's because of parking, how the city code is and how the zoning code is. You have to have X amount of parking spots per unit or per person. And they said it would just be unaffordable to, to do this or this or this. Um, and they said, that's why they haven't done it. And, hmm. you know, I never understood that and, until I, I saw it from my, my own eyes in, in Pikeville, um, because Pikeville, again, you don't have much land area to build. I mean, especially in the city. Um, and you, you've had some sprawl a little bit um, in, in different areas, but where the university is, University of Pikeville, where Appalachian Wireless Arena, which is a big um, arena in town, and then where the hospital, Pikeville Medical Center is, that's where it, that's the densest area of of the city, and in that specific area, there's not a lot of options to live. So, I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, there's going to have to be some kind of shift because the university is growing a lot. They're bringing a um, dental school. They're adding that to the mix. Um, so, it's going to continue to grow, and th- there will need to be some changes. And I really think that aspect of building up it would help Pikeville. I don't know if they'll mm-hmm. do it, but um, I think so. Well, and, and in, in, a, in that context in particular, right, I mean, if you're building housing that's mostly catering to students or that's quite close to the university, many students might not have a car, right? Uh, in fact, I would expect that would be the norm. Uh, students who are living within a half mile of campus probably would not have a car. And what these codes do is they essentially say, well, you might have preferred a cheaper apartment, but without a parking space because you just don't need it. But we literally don't give you the choice. And exactly to your point, it's not just that the housing that does get built becomes more unaffordable, but these parking mandates can often make it completely infeasible to build infill on some of these smaller, uh, you know, historical lots. Right. So if you say, well, we're only going to allow you to build an apartment building in the C3 district unless you if you have a giant parking lot or a parking garage. Well, the parking garage will just be too expensive. That'll never happen. But then the parking lot might require so much space that the whole thing just doesn't work anymore. Um, and, and would downtown Pikeville really be better if it had a whole bunch of parking surface lots? I would argue, no, it wouldn't. What's desirable about that little downtown fabric is that it's this walkable cluster of uses that folks come down there, they park their car, they walk around during the day. Um, you know, this is something that we've done with so many cities over the past hundred years is we try to say, well, let's take our historic downtowns and turn them into things that look like suburban strip malls. And I think that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of this asset that cities are sitting on. Of like, you have this beautiful little small town that's a mixture of uses make it as easy as possible to re-inhabit that space, to re-enliven that space, and then to build more onto that existing street grid and to build out your existing little urban area. That is, th- these are incredible assets that, that local jurisdictions just ignore. And, and, you know, I think we talk about in these conversations, we talk about New York and, and California, right? I mean, there are great examples of this in the, in the greater Appalachian region, right? I mean, you know, Lexington has eliminated their parking requirements. They said, we're tired of, mandating that every uh, new development that gets proposed have a giant parking lot or a giant parking garage that doesn't enrich our community. In fact, it impoverishes it. Uh, or, you know, just over the mountains, right, in a place like uh, Asheville, they realized like, wow, our downtown street grid, that's that's one of our greatest assets, our downtown historic buildings. Why should we make those buildings legally difficult to inhabit? And then why should we make it illegal to build uh, more mixed-use communities like that? And so it's been a complete paradigm shift that I think a lot of jurisdictions all across the regions are going through realizing like this is our, you know, of course there's a constraint of like, we just don't have a lot of flat land, 
but actually that can be seen as a, as a strength and that there's going to be more demand to enliven and enrich the existing urban areas that you have today. And I think once a lot of these Appalachian cities and towns stop fighting with that and start saying, well, woe is me if only we had more flat land, you've got this great asset that you could reinvest in, that you could encourage the revitalization of if you just, I think, uh, shift your paradigm about what, you know, what the assets that are sitting right before you are. Um, city like Pikeville, you have that beautiful little street grid that's near the major employers, that's near major entertainment centers. You know, that could be a really enlivened uh, community that, that enriches the current residents and, of course, allows more people to come and enjoy opportunity in a region that's been so starved of opportunity. But that's going to require a paradigm shift about what growth looks like. And, and my final point I'll make is in Pikeville, basically where you park, there's a big parking garage that's connected to a hotel right in town. And the university has to actually pay this um, this hotel X amount per parking spot. I, I forget what the breakdown was for students to use the parking garage. Because, again, there's just not there's not many options to park. So what I would do is literally I'd, I'd park in the parking garage and walk all the way up this mountain to get to where I lived. And it was it was annoying. But that's what you did. And another thing that Pikeville has is there's a three three day period, and I can't remember what part of year it is, but they call it hillbilly days, where they literally shut down downtown and bring in vendors, all kinds of vendors, food trucks, like a whole carnival Ferris wheel. It's like a big, mm. big, big thing, and people come from all over the area. That's another huge um, economic development that Pikeville has. Mm. But parking is such a nightmare that it's such a mess because you don't have the availability for people to park. So looking at, you know, the university, the hospital, the entertainment center, then something like hillbilly days, it's they're screaming for help. And I, I just think that, you know, it just needs to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a, that's a little bit of a separate issue from land use planning, but there, there, I, you know, I touch a little bit on it in the book is uh, effective parking management, right? I mean, just getting your prices right. Um, you know, making sure that you are pricing your parking correctly so that, you know, you're getting folks to, uh, to think about, you know, shifting to other modes where possible. Uh, then of course, having land use rules in place that allow them to, if they want to live a car light or a car free lifestyle, they have that option. Uh, of course, current Pikeville rules essentially write auto dependence into law. We force everybody to have a car and then we're surprised when, uh, the traffic and the parking situation is so bad. Um, so, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this issue with parking and zoning, these are highly solvable problems, right? Uh, these are, these are welcome problems. They're problems of growth. They're problems of dynamism. And they're, they're actually, frankly, kind of good problems to have. Um, you know, I try to, the, I end the, I end the book on an optimistic note, right? Say like, I wouldn't be writing about this if I didn't think a better world was possible that we could do better. And, 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 and many cases are already starting to do better. Um, that's the thing that I would just like to leave folks with is, you know, Put the work in. These are solvable problems. We know what the solutions look like. We can start building more affordable, equitable, sustainable, dynamic communities tomorrow if we decide to do that. So, Nolan, um, if anyone wants to get a copy of your book, where can they get it? Can they get it at a bookstore? Is this online? Where can they obtain a copy of your book? Yeah. So uh, I encourage folks to go buy it from a local bookseller. Uh, It's available online if that's not available to you. Amazon, Bookshop. Um, bookshop.com.org. Uh, of course, you can order directly from Island Press, the, the press that, that, that published the book. Fantastic group of people. Um, yeah. 
And then if, if they want to follow you on social media, I, 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 I see all your stuff on Twitter and it's, um, you actually have a really big following on Twitter. Um, and you talk a lot about these issues, which is really cool. I, I love Twitter just because you can have an author like yourself that'll break down specific topics where I feel like I'm learning something, like I'm reading another book. So where can they find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on all major platforms, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. I'm at M. Nolan Gray. I'm now on Blue Sky, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that'll, if that'll age well, depending on when this episode comes out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter and I'd love folks to, to follow me and, and share what they're finding in their communities and get involved. Well, Nolan, thank you so much for joining the Green Hour again. It's been it's been so much fun to learn about um, zoning and, and all of the different aspects that come along with it. And then talking about Pikeville because near and dear to my heart. So just thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Preston. <laughs>